Hi, my name is Emily McGrath. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Resonate podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Resonate Bristol team associated with St Stephen's and Holy Trinity Hotwells churches. Welcome. Resonate is usually a physical event, however, current circumstances have encouraged us to explore other digital formats. We aim to cultivate an open-minded space where we can explore ideas and, in this time when we are physically separated, we hope these snapshots of our community can be a link to others. First up, Adrian speaks to Maddie about her recent reads, her passion for academia and escapism through historical fiction. Next, Sarah reflects on the parallels between the current pandemic and science fiction. Adrian and Ed explore travel writing and pianos in Siberia. And finally, Rachel talks about why she is a writer and her upcoming new release, The Wolf Eagle Awakening. Hello, I'm Adrian Hawkins and I'm on a call with Maddie O'Hara. Maddie has kindly agreed to talk about some of the things she's been reading and writing over the last couple of months during lockdown. So Maddie, can we start with a a fairly general question? What have you been reading over the last few months? Yeah, uh, hello, firstly. Um, Yeah, so I've been reading mostly academic things as I was writing my dissertation. But in terms of non-academic, more fictional, um, I have read uh, three books, which for me is a victory I don't know how how many that is for other people but for me I don't do much reading so I'm quite pleased but anyway the first one that I read is called The Familiars by Stacey Halls it's historical fiction which looking at the pile I've got is all that I've read but that wasn't deliberate I do read more genres but I like historical fiction and so it's set uh, in early seven six sixteen sorry sixteen hundreds in Lancaster and it's about a woman a noble woman who seeks a midwife to carry a child and this midwife is caught up in witchcraft which was obviously persecuted by King James at the time Uh, and so it kind of follows their story and their interactions and women's rights and the persecution of witches and yeah it's very interesting I'd recommend Uh, and then so I also read Death in the East uh, which is the fourth book of a series called Smoke and Ashes, which is by Abir Mukherjee. I don't think I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, and so it's set in turn of the century, so 1900s, India, and it's about a British policeman in India solving crimes. I mean, yeah, doing a policeman's job against the historical background of the independence movement uh, and the, the role of the British and, you know, the way race relations, and I think which is obviously very topical at the minute. Uh, and it's just very interesting as, as a period of history and also as, um, as a detective whodunit style of book. Yeah. Uh, so the third one is called Across the Nightingale Floor by Liam Hearn. Uh, and it's set in Japan. So I'm going all the way around the world with my books. Um, set in Japan in an unknown, I don't think it was specified, unspecified time period. Uh, and it's, I guess, probably young young fiction, young adult um, fiction style, uh, but a boy called Takio 
who I'm trying trying not to give it away, but he uh, discovers that he has, I guess, powers for the sake. Of, yeah, he's part of he's part of the hidden, but then becomes part of the tribe, and then so there's a lot of different. Um, he joins one clan, and they're would be better if I read the blurb, I, I realise, but the book's downstairs. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so he's part of one clan um, and it kind of follows the politics and against the, the main Lord Isher, who's the main, char- the main bad guy. Um, yeah, so it kind of follows them and his journey to self-discovery with his powers, but then also politically, which kind of clan and tribe will be triumphant. That's very interesting. Fantastic. Yeah, so they, they the sound, part. they're all historical fiction, but they sound very, very, very... Yeah, they are. I would recommend, yeah. And that one's a trilogy, but I haven't read the other two yet. So you said you've read quite a bit more during lockdown than you normally read as a as a student. Yeah, I have. On reading I've as had... a student is, is difficult. Yeah, <laughs> I've had a lot more time, basically. Is it, is it just the time or is it sort of there's, there's been more kind of incentive to, to read? Probably, probably both. I mean... Obviously, the time is time factor is definitely a big one, but partly my mum and my sister, who I live with, are both big, big, big readers, and so there's just constant books in circulation in our household. Yeah, um, from friends and family, or occasion Amazon parcels. Um, other companies are of course available, um, and. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it is partly their influence. And then so if they say, um, read this great book, and then it just gets passed around the household, or if I find a book and then passes around the household. Yeah, plus what with the weather, it's more enjoyable to just sit outside, get engrossed yeah. in the book. Um, <laughs> it's just a very nice way to pass time. Yeah. So were uh, any of those three books, have they been read by your sister or mum before? All three. Yeah, all, all three. three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I passed uh, the one set in Japan across the nightingale floor that was read by me and then passed round uh the familiars was passed by my mum uh and then we me and my mum both read the um series set in india although i don't think my sister's read it actually but yeah they're, they're all constant yeah she will at some point definitely and this is a historian asking a question here do, do you um is the historical fiction do you think is, is that sort of a I don't want to say escapism, but is it is it a way of getting away from our present reality and and going into different worlds and different parts of different places, or is that reading too much into it? Uh, they were just books that were were available. No, no, I, I I do agree, and I think maybe not with the one that was set in England because I guess I mean I studied that period of history at school, so it is it is less escapist in the sense that I already know about it. Certainly for the series set in Japan I, I know nothing about Japanese history or a lot about you know culture and all of that so that that's definitely I don't know if escapism is the right word um but it's yeah definitely an educational choice as well as a literature literary one um I studied the that kind of the independence movement in India from British rule is something I a period of history I find really really interesting as well as the whole, you know, period of colonialism, you know, sadly it's not taught in schools to should be. Um, and so that's a, a kind of, yeah, a really good way. I really enjoy the kind of whodunit murder mystery type of genre as well, but kind of harmonising with 
that period of history just really interests me. Yeah, that's and it's quite a novel way to approach history. Uh, books in Japan um, over the last couple of months, and I think some of that is to do with just wanting to get out of where oh, definitely. before war definitely, and yeah. go to different yeah. places and, and see different. Well, yeah, because you can picture it in your mind different things. when they describe like the landscape and the people. You can really, yeah. So that actually leads nicely into the next question. Um, just in sort of more general terms, what, what do you enjoy about reading? You said it's nice to sit outside on a nice summer's day and be in the sunshine reading a book, but anything else about reading that you particularly enjoy? I like the, the community aspect to it. In second year of university, so two years ago, I ran a book club, uh, just a very small one, uh, it was for um, the LGBT society. And so that was quite fun because we'd get together once a month and discuss the book that we'd all been reading. Uh, and so that it brings a, a kind of extra sense of, yeah, of, of fellowship almost. And you can, it's quite nice. We would just meet in the Watershed Cafe every month. Yeah. And I didn't know all of them, um, as in all, all of the people who came. I did, did know some, but it's just quite nice because you can, share your thoughts about a book and it it's really um i found it to be quite a springboard those meetings because you know it would be presented you'd present the theme like one of them we did orlando by virginia wolf yep. so we would start of course you know discussing the, the main themes and that but then you would kind of go on from that almost like a, a verbal mind map almost yeah and i suppose ideas when you're in a book club or having a discussion of a book that you didn't see when you're reading the book that sort of exactly yeah. when you talk to to other people about them yeah, and kind of definitely. develop and yeah. then you see it slightly differently and it yeah. sounds like you do a little bit of that with, like your, with your mum and sister at the moment um yeah the mini yeah, book <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's a main topic of conversation partly because i mean nothing else is really happening we talk about <laughs> books a lot but um nonetheless it is yeah it is very interesting and just yeah hearing other people's ideas other people's takes on a certain theme or a certain chapter of a book, what happened. Yeah, it's a very novel concept, pun not intended. Was there, was, there, um, was there a book from that book club that stands out two years later, sort of looking back on that? I did really enjoy Orlando, we yeah. talked about, that I mentioned. That was really, really good. Uh, a book called Mr. Loverman by Bernard Evangelista, I think. I think. The title is definitely Mr. Loverman, but it's about a Jamaican man living in Britain and it kind of follows his life. Starts, I think, in the 60s up until more or less present day. And so it kind of, he is married but uh, to a woman, but he is gay, um, as as he discovers. Um, that's not really a spoiler. It's, it's It says it on the blurb. <laughs> but yeah. Um, and so I really enjoyed that because it just provides a whole new perspective. Yeah. On, on the experience. Yeah. And you know, yeah. On the experience of, of being gay, on the experience of being Jamaican in Britain, just the kind of um, the coming together or yeah, the mixing infusion. I say nice word. We'll do the infusion uh, of, of different parts for someone's identity. It was very interesting. And yeah, that was a good book for springboard conversations. It sounds like historical fiction as well, in a, in a sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I promise I read more, but yeah, that's definitely preference. So um, how would you say your reading has changed over time? I think my experience as a student was sound quite similar to yours, that you're just, um, there's so much other things going on that there's actually less time for reading for fun than yeah. 
than I had when I was at, at school. But how was that? How is sort of your memories of, of reading? Do you have anything sort of? Does anything stand out? Yeah, I mean, I agree that I have less time for uh, fictional reading. Um, I would say reading for pleasure, but uh, I quite enjoy academia. <laughs> so I actually quite enjoy reading things for university. But um, yeah, no, one of the main memories, I guess, would be, I mean, it's a very classic memory. Most British households probably share it. But uh, when we were little, um, if we would go on long car journeys, because my family has a caravan in Norfolk, and so to drive there, you know, for Easter holidays or summer holidays would be probably about three to maybe two and a half hour drive. And so we would um, put on Stephen Fry reading Harry Potter, uh, you know, the audio books. Yeah. Uh, and so that's just like if, if someone asked me for my main like a memory of reading. I know it's technically listening, but um, I just, it's just really vivid because we would just listen to, I genuinely think I've listened to them at least four times each. Like it was a, a proper thing. And I guess partly when you're little, you don't remember all the details. So then you re-listen and re-listen. So I, I know those stories very well. But yeah, it was just very nice because it was, um, we'd all be quite silent in the car. And then it's, you know, dad would be like, oh yeah, okay, fine, we'll put it on. But then he would get invested in it too. Yeah. That would be the main one, definitely. It's like a traffic jam in the M25 and... Uh, yeah, and, yeah. It, it seemed, yeah, less less long than it... Another form of escapism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. So you mentioned academic books and actually enjoying those. You said there was an academic book that uh, you wanted to, to say something about. Yeah, one of my main loves is academia. Um yeah, so I, for my dissertation, uh, I did a, uh, a kind of an analysis into Tunisian and Egyptian street art during their revolutions of 2011-2012, which already form part of the Arab Spring. Uh, and so one of the works, actually I think um, the one that was in the picture of, I don't remember what week, must have been about two, three weeks ago that I wrote the piece for the community news. Yeah. But the image in that is by Ala Awad and he, the piece is called Women in Mourning. And he uses lots of hier hieroglyphic imagery and from ancient Egyptian pharaohs and ancient Egyptian mythology in his art. And so to kind of further my analysis, I was, I was researching into that field. And there was a book called Symbol and Magic in Ancient Egyptian Art by Richard Wilkinson, I think. Uh, it was written in 1994, so quite a while back. But uh, for anyone who wishes to <laughs> learn more about symbol and magic in ancient Egyptian art, it was very, very interesting. It kind of goes into the colour theory, um, references to different gods, what they'd represent, the um, flowers that would be used, like the black, the lotus flower, um, was highly prevalent in ancient Egyptian art. Black would be kind of the symbol of death. White and blue, um, blue, the white represented life, and then blue, kind of the um, the oceans and the sky and the man-made earth. Um, partly because those were the colours that were like most readily available at that time in terms of you know finding the resources to create the paint. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a very interesting way of approaching art um, and looking at the more um, 
rather than the image itself the aspects that create the image if that makes sense and what um inspirations feed into it and how closely had did the modern revolutionaries appropriate the ancient egyptian art traditions when they were doing their um it very i mean in this case with this artist um it's a very very explicit reference um you know he's he said it himself on himself on the on his website and in interviews um the key depicted um so there's is a bird called the ba which is someone's soul or spirit which he you know explicitly depicts and then there's the door of osiris which is um he was many things one of which was the god of the underworld um because the mural depicted um martyrs that, that had died during this revolution uh, and so i thought it was quite a nice harmonization almost between ancient egyptian gods and current martyrdom and their plight um so yeah quite quite explicit in this one um there's yeah there's a whole debate i won't go into it i'm aware i'm on a tangent but um there's a whole debate about um western archaeologists exclusion of egyptians from their own ancient past and kind of discoveries and yeah and so this um awad's mural really tried to reclaim in my opinion allegedly uh trying to reclaim his own their, their country's own kind of past and history through art and the so I suppose for me, ancient Egypt has a little bit of a sort of oppressive feel and the, the pyramids and the, the slavery and yeah. I suppose the, yeah. the biblical... Yeah, no, I'm aware it wasn't Egypt. all... Yeah. It, it, the, the sort of the art and the Egyptian gods, are they a, a way around to a sort of... It, it's not all about that, that oppression or... Um... I suppose so, yeah. I hadn't thought about it in that... I guess so, because I think... Um, same in the sense of when we study ancient Greek myths, the gods are more, I guess it's a dangerous territory, but the gods are more of a concept, if you will, um, and what they can represent. Um, so, you know, Athena being the goddess um, of the hunt, for example, or Osiris being the god of the underworld, the Greek first, Egyptian second, sorry. Um, yeah, and I guess they have more universe of value like you don't need to know uh ancient egyptian history to be able to learn about their myths and their gods yeah um and i think i think it's more of a powerful symbol than just seeing the pyramid which obviously is, is very very important um and i'm not not denying at all that part of history but i think yeah gods also i think partly we have such a um like there's so much hype for lack of a better word around um greek mythology um maybe because it's western i don't really know i'm aware it's a bold claim um but it is quite nice to um study egypt and to study the middle east um and to try and not bring more awareness i suppose but yeah to increase people's knowledge of other myths and deities across the world I don't really know. Yeah. So alongside <laughs> doing all of this reading, you've also spent at least some of the last three or four months um, writing a dissertation. <laughs> How have you found the sort of the other side of the, the literature of lockdown and actually has it been conducive to writing or have you, have you struggled a bit in terms of getting, getting words on the page because of everything else that's going on? 
Um, I think it's actually been more conducive um, than than the contrary because, I mean, firstly, I the amount of research I've done, like I feel I feel very knowledgeable, <laughs> basically. And so when it, when it came yeah. to writing. <laughs> Yeah, as I'm sure you feel, you do so much research, and then when it comes to writing, it's a struggle to kind of condense what you want to say, and not to go off on so many tangents, which I'm aware I'm exhibiting right now. And so, yeah, I had more more time now more than ever to to really reflect on what I wanted to say, and to kind of really nuance the words I chose and the arguments I wish to present, um, and to to kind of give myself more flexibility and creativity in writing because I'm aware it's an academic piece and I, it's not, I'm not writing a novel in that same creative sense, but there, there is definitely an element of originality and creativity to it that, yeah, I definitely enjoyed and found very helpful reading academic and non-academic works. Was there any sense of empathy that you were obviously in very strange circumstances as you were writing this and the, the revolutionaries who you're writing about, um, they, they're being pushed to the edge and the, the extremes in what, what was happening um, in Tunisia and um, Egypt. Did, did that help at all or is, is that stretching it a little bit? No, it, def it definitely did help. I don't, I think they're very different plights that we're, that we're currently facing. Um, I think more, more than anything, it just made me realise, um, I mean, it only happened just under a decade ago. And I mean, I was in the middle of, I think it was year nine, year 10. I don't know, but <laughs> point is I was in secondary school um, and you'd hear about it on the news, but we didn't really talk about it. Obviously, I don't know what the university scene was like and whether adults with a capital A whether they were talking about it, I don't know. But yeah, it just made me realise that I just knew nothing about the Arab Spring and the events of even one country in it. That's when it made me realise the most. And even, I, you know, I have friends from Tunisia, for example, and I didn't even know um, the coronavirus situation in their country or my friend in Morocco. I, You know, that it's media or at least my viewing the media that I view is very Western centric and I do try to change that. But yeah, it just, it just reminded me that even now in a in the pandemic that is undeniably global, um, my knowledge is very Western focused. But in a sense, the literature hel helps us to ask those questions and, and go beyond Definitely. our current yeah. situation. And, yeah. And, and that's, I think that is really why I like historical fiction because it does tie in, the element definitely of the fictional but of truth and you can you know you can learn more about the independence movement in India um not in depth but you can definitely learn about it through the novels or you know the situation with James the first and witches through through familiars yeah I quite like the tying in of those two so I'm going to be asking everyone if they have a, a little passage to, to read out from any of the books. Is, is there anything that stands out in any of the, the books that you've mentioned that you could finish by, by reading out? Yeah, um, I can read out the, the Death in the East book has a little prologue. The birds were killing themselves. Not a few, but thousands. They're starlings, said the woman. Suicide birds. A long dead schoolmaster's question echoed inside my skull. You, Wyndham, the collective noun for a flock of starlings is... 
my ignorance met by the crack of ruler upon the desk. Murmuration, boy, a flock of starlings is called a murmuration. Now don't forget, murmuration. It suggested the clandestine, something whispered, something hidden. Maybe it had to do with the way they flew, vast flocks pirouetting through the clouds as though of one mind, receiving instructions from one voice. And tonight, in the void of a new moon, did that voice tell them to plummet earthward through mountain mists and to break themselves on the floor of this valley in the middle of nowhere? I leaned on the veranda's wooden balustrade and watched. In the valley below, the flames from a hundred torches illuminated a scene from Dante as half-naked tribesmen shrieked and ran and set about the falling creatures with clubs and sticks. Why do they do it? I asked. The woman turned to me, her expression suddenly sombre. Fear, she said. The same reason men, the world, over, attack anything they don't understand. I meant the birds. Why do they come here to die? She smiled. Everything has to die somewhere. And personally, Captain, I can't think of a better place. Can you? She looked down at the tribesmen. Of course, the locals say the valley is cursed, that the birds become possessed by evil spirits. And you? I asked. What do you believe? Me? She feigned surprise, a pretense for my benefit, then moved closer. When she spoke, her voice was a whisper. If you decide to stay in our little outpost for any length of time, Captain, you may find a fair few of our number who are possessed of certain malevolence. Who's to say there isn't evil at work here? The cries from the valley floor started to ebb and the air began to still, no longer roiled by the constant swoop and smack of birds crashing to their deaths. Behind us, a door opened. Yellow light spilled onto the velvet blackness of the, of the veranda. A starched servant in white tunic and stiff van turban made the call to dinner, then stood aside as the sahibs and members of the Jatinga Club downed drinks and, process, and processed inside. Emily Carter took a final sip from her flute. Brace yourself, Captain, she said. This is where the fun starts. She handed the empty glass to the servant and disappeared inside, though not before kicking a blood-stained bird off the balcony and away into the darkness below. Literature under lockdown. I once heard someone talking about how they coped with the physical pain caused by a medical condition. Instead of ignoring the pain, they focused on it and this somehow made it more tolerable. I wonder if I've been doing the same thing during this coronavirus pandemic. A lot of people would want to read books and watch films that take them out of themselves, cheer them up and distract them. But I've been drawn to read books where the characters are isolated or facing danger or coping with challenging circumstances. Occasionally I've overdone it and have had a sleepless night while some storyline churns around in my mind, but usually I've found it reassuring or interesting that fictional characters might be unsettled by challenges not all that dissimilar from those that we are experiencing in 2020. I have more time on my hands at the moment and I'm reading a lot of fiction and non-fiction. So far as fiction goes, I've been focusing on mid-20th century science fiction. The writer R.C. Sheriff is most famous for the play Journey's End, based on his experiences as an army officer in the First World War. But he also wrote novels 
and one called the Hopkins Manuscript was published in 1939 as the world was on the brink of the Second World War. This novel is in the form of a diary written by an unremarkable man living at a time when the earth has been nearly devastated by a collision with the moon. This tale of ordinary people striving to live normally under very challenging circumstances resonates with my experience of our own current restrictions. There's a lot of focus on finding food and preparing meals. Also, occasional contact with neighbours, trying to keep up morale within one's own, house, one's own household, the compulsion to follow national and international news, feelings of disappointment with decisions made by politicians. I can also identify with the central character's need to document his experience by writing a detailed diary. I'm not writing a diary, but I am taking photos to keep a record of our everyday life under lockdown. My interest in science fiction dates from when I first went to secondary school and came across several John Wyndham novels in the school library. Later on, when I was in the sixth form, I became very interested in physics and astronomy. One of the British astronomers who was famous at that time was Sir Fred Hoyle. As well as his scientific publications, he also wrote science fiction, and I've just read his first novel, The Black Cloud, which was published in 1957. This is another tale where life on Earth is threatened, this time by a huge black cloud approaching from outer space. An international group of scientists have been gathered at a country house in England and are working together to find out what the cloud is and how to protect the Earth. While reading the book, you cannot help compare their situation with the modern-day scientists racing against time to find a vaccine for COVID-19. There's also the issue of saving as many lives as possible while acknowledging that many people around the Earth will perish. And there's some political intrigue as well. The scientists are reporting to the British government, but they are not confident that the information will be shared with the public or even with the governments of other countries. As I said before, I have also been reading a lot of non-fiction. The Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book this year, Saying Yes to Life, by Ruth Valerio, challenged Christians to take the climate crisis seriously. After this, I read several other books about the environment and related theological and scientific issues. The scientific books were no doubt one of the nudges for me to re-explore classic science fiction. In 1961, Brian Aldiss published a novel called Hot House, set on a version of our Earth in the far future, when most animals are extinct, but plants have evolved in dangerous ways. The remaining humans live in small tribes, fighting to stay alive amongst the threatening greenery. It's a very atmospheric book, which paints a fantastical picture of an environment in crisis. In our current situation, we sometimes talk about the coronavirus as though it was a conscious being. We say it is threatening, adaptable, mutating, unpredictable, and even intelligent. 
a novel like hothouse where humans are fighting for life against natural things that they don't understand can help me think about our world, the pandemic and the environmental crisis in a new way. Another novel that was also published in 1961, Solaris, is by the Polish writer Stanislaw Lem. The story is set on a space station hovering over the ocean of a mysterious planet called Solaris. The crew of three who live on this space station are very isolated. Messages to and from Earth take several months to arrive. As time goes on, strange things happen that make them doubt their sanity. This is made worse by the fact that they do not trust one another. This book made me think about how I'm coping psychologically under lockdown. I don't fear for my sanity, but I sometimes feel sad and unsettled in an indefinable way. Even sharing a house with another person, it is possible to feel lonely, nervous and helpless. This novel has been adapted for the cinema twice, a Soviet film in 1972 and an American one starring George Clooney in 2002. Both films focused on the human relationships in the story, but missed out the interaction between the humans and the planet's ocean. The novel describes well the extraordinary physical and psychological alienness of the Solaris Ocean. Again, for me, this had resonances with the alien virus that we are all trying to avoid. I'm going to carry on with my reading project. I'm planning to read or reread books by H.G. Wells, John Wyndham, J.G. Ballard, Ursula Le Guin and more. Science fiction from this era is very nostalgic for me and at this weird time it is interesting to think back over my life and remember things I have studied and have been interested in. I don't feel ready for the lockdown to end and I want to explore these ideas and emotions further. In particular, I need to think more about how my Christian faith relates to the pressures and restrictions that we are currently facing. I'm Adrian Hawkins, and I'm speaking uh, virtually with Ed, Edward Kay. Um, so thank you, Ed, for joining us and uh, agreeing to talk a little bit about some of the things you've been reading over the last two or three months during, during lockdown. Maybe we could start by just getting a general sense of some of the things you have been reading. Yes. Um, first of all, thank you very much for asking me, and really nice to be on the show, as they say. Uh, um, yes, I've made a list of some of the things I've been reading. Um, then these are not in any particular order or chronological or anything. So um, when, when uh, lockdown came, I just started on actually uh, The Salt Path, which I think is quite um, well known, which is about a couple who find themselves um, on, in, in sort of totally destitute and, and they to part um, and it's an amazing story and it's very life-affirming and touching and humorous and sad in fact a lot of my books have been have had this sort of uh, humorous witty very deeply felt and um, quite sort of um, yeah I think those two things are 
by and large, the sort of things I've been going for over the last few months. Um, so yes, the salt path, um, the um, uh, unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry, where he starts, again, it's a walking book, which I made immediately after Salt Path, he starts on the south coast and inadvertently finds himself walking towards, um, he walks the length of the country to see a woman he used to know. There's nothing about it, because she, she's actually done from cancer. He just feels he has to do it. Another extraordinary book, Underland by uh, Robert McFarlane, which is a sort of ecological, come adventurous um, story about looking underneath where we live in all sorts of caves, as, as well as lots of things that happen on, on the earth. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of green book, really, but it, it's, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And in fact, at the moment, I'm also reading um, The Old Ways by him, which I explore old footpaths, which you may know of. Um, also, um, Eric Newby's um, A Collection of Travel Diaries, which is an extraordinary book um, about people who have traveled the world. There are all sorts of people from about um, 500 AD right up to the present time. Um, people from Marco Polo to um, uh, Scott in the, of the Antarctic and Shackleton and all sorts of people exploring Africa and all over the country, all, all, all over the world. Fascinating. Um, uh, it's a sort of um, library, really, of, of diaries. Some of them are only sort of page each. So uh, easily a page each. So they make very good bedtime reading when you fall asleep um, over reading a book. You know, you actually read one. And <laughs> so forth. Um, the Minion by Tom Holland, um, which is about the way and the making of the Western mind through Christ Christianity, which is fascinating. Again, um, I'm always interested in the Crusades, so the histories of the Crusades, um, and um, also. One more, the, oh, the Impossible Climb, which is um, about a uh, climber, Alex Honnold, who climbs the sheer 3,000 foot face of El Capitan in Yosemite, but yep. uh, without ropes. <laughs> no ropes. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. So, um, yeah, and uh, I just finished All Points North, by Simon Armitage, which is a fascinating reading about being, being what it's like to be a northerner. And it's wonderful, so humorous and very, very, um, very insightful. So that's the sort of sum total. So it sounds like quite a few of them have been travel related. Is, is that mm. your normal reading or is that something sort of a response to being stuck, stuck inside, you think? Um, I think it's probably, a, a probably, <laughs> Um, a sort of response to being stuck inside and wishing I could travel, perhaps. <laughs> I was actually, shortly before we were closed down, I'd got most of the way through Bleak House by Charles Dickens, which is nothing to do with travel at all. So, um, no, uh, quite a variety uh, of books, I would like to think. But uh, yes, they are somehow all to do with travel. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and yeah, you yeah. mentioned a book about uh, the Siberian piano. Was that, is, um, am I getting that right? Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. This is an extraordinary book, which I also read during lockdown. Um, <clears throat> that's the title and the book. It's by um, Sophie Roberts. And it's, 
it's actually it's, a, it's her first book and it's Ed, could you just read out the title sorry for the audio recording oh sorry yes yeah the lost pianos of siberia good title um, yeah it is it is and I, it it was reviewed quite recently got rave reviews and it's the most extraordinary book because besides um looking at four uh, pianos all over siberia and she in a way she had no idea what she was letting herself in for um but besides the discovery of pianos she discovers all sorts of things about siberia and russia um, both political, social, um, musical, as well, of course, um, which she had ne never known about, and which I'd never known about, not, not that I should have done, but, um, and, and all sorts of pianos in strange places, and the things that lead her up to finding these pianos are extraordinary, the way she finds that she comes upon them. She tends to go to a small village for whatever re reason, because uh, she's either heard about it or heard that there's a piano there. And she almost invariably looks for the piano tuner, the local piano tuner, who invariably has a sort of um, door into all the pianos in the area. And some of the most extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> um, and some of the places she finds herself in, you know, you wouldn't dream of going, let alone uh, going to, let alone to find a piano. Um, but she comes across some extraordinary things. And what accounts for there being so many pianos in Siberia? Is that, is that sort of a cultural interest in music? Or? Yes, it's, it's many things really. Um, some people have been inspired by visiting pianists. Some, uh, some have had pianos right over to the eastern seaboard, uh, Cooks and Kamchatka and right over there, um, because people are fairly isolated. Yeah. Villages are fairly isolated and sometimes have not had anything to do. But somehow a piano is a, a sort of factor which unifies everybody in the area. And they all come to listen to the, to the piano. Um, I can... <laughs> uh, I, I mean, you, she tells of pianos being carted 500 miles across the snow on a sledge. I mean, just to, it's, had, it's hard enough getting a piano here with the piano remover. But, but yeah, 500 <laughs> miles is. <laughs> yes, the dedication. And I think that's something that comes into it, this sort of dedication and single-mindedness of the Russian people and what they do and how they achieve what they want to do is, is something extraordinary. Because I, I suppose they are up, up against so much in all sorts of political... Um, Ge geological ways and of course in Siberia people are sent to Siberia were sent to Siberia by Stalin and so forth you know, it was the place not to go but <laughs> yeah but people live there of course and their lifestyle is extraordinary yeah, yeah, I suppose in my mind I have a vision of Siberia that doesn't necessarily involve pianos um no this sort of extreme place um but like it you say it makes sense that if if you're living in a, a small village in the middle of winter like having a piano mm. is something that can really get you through that um isolation yes. yeah yeah but some of them are there purely by accident like, <laughs> it's extraordinary and everything from a, a ghastly totally shot through um upright pianos to lovely concert grands 
I don't know how they got there. <laughs> and she's actually not quite sure how some of them got there, but she finds them and plays them and they have, and they're just described in various ways of having a particular tone or whatever, you know, um, and some of them are, are oh, easy more than 100, 150 years old. So I, I know you're a pianist, Ed, um, but do you know much about Russia? Is, is Russia an interest of yours or what was that side of things new for this book? Well, it, it, no, it just hasn't, hasn't come about just because of the book. Um, I th I'm always fascinated by Russian things. Um, I, I'm just, I'm very much in awe of them as people, uh, thinking what they've had to go through, particularly the further east you get. Yeah. And then there's the whole business of Leningrad and Stalingrad in the Second World War, which were unbelievable situations. She tries to find, <clears throat> was played... Um, in the original performance of Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony, which he wrote whilst Leningrad was being attacked, and it describes the sort of, it, it's a very pictorial piece, it's an amazing piece. It lasts about nearly an hour or something, but it's, it's a stunning piece. And he describes the march of, the, of, the, of Hitler's army coming towards um, uh, Leningrad and of course the incredible hunger that they had to endure um, and he wrote this piece as it were as a sort of description of Hitler and also in defiance of Hitler um, and of course the Leningrad's the Leningrad people did not submit to Hitler but this music was played out on massive loudspeakers to the advancing army, to the advancing Hitler army, and they they were actually flummoxed by it. They heard this music coming over and they thought to themselves, well, Leningrad people are so robust, they still stand up to us, you know, they, they're, they're not going to give in. And it was a good political ploy to do, do that. But the piano that is used in the orchestra, um, he, uh, as she found somewhere, I can't remember where, but, and she said, just to find this piano that has seen so much, you know, so much history. And she goes about describing much of the background history to a lot of the pianos and, 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 and the people who played them or who might have played them and, and also particular people who actually did play them. Uh, it, it is a most extraordinary book. So it, it sounds like a big theme is sort of the adversity and overcoming adversity in, in these stories of the, of the pianos and the yeah. people. Again, is, yeah. is that something that we're sort of reading into a lockdown literature or do you, do you think that that has been sort of, I don't know, comforting or reassuring or that there's, there's sort of a bigger, bigger world out there and things survive? Is, has that been part of the, your response or? Um, I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms especially, but I think that subliminally yes that, that that is that has been a sort of agenda how people behave in adversity has been quite a quite a pointer really and also to feel that you know you can get through it i mean for instance <laughs> going back to leningrad um you as, as you doubtless know they were living off sort of rats and bits of old leather and you know they they boiled up their shoes etc etc um but um, they, even, even today, 
as we speak, never throw away a piece of bread. Right. They just, you, you just don't, don't do it because yeah. you know that that's what you've been through. You have that memory. So of anybody who throws a piece of bread away, they are out. Yeah. Socially. Social outcast. It's, it's that severe. <laughs> and that's committed to things. And I, I, I love that commitment and that denial of adversity. You know, we will get through. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. And that actually comes through a lot of the books I've been reading. Yeah. Did, um, I asked you to prepare a couple of passages, Ed, um, from this, this book. Did you have a couple yeah. to read to us to give us a flavor yes. of the, the writing? A lot of Polish people were either deported or went to live in Siberia. So there's, a, there's actually quite a big Polish population, at least there was about 50 years ago, out in the eastern end of Siberia. So a, a quick um, idea of um, what it was like in Warsaw. What would have definitely been present was the sound of, a, of the piano in a 19th century Polish exile's head. Talking about Polish exiles. In mid-19th century Warsaw, the piano was, quote, reigning like a despot in the drawing rooms, reported one local newspaper. Quote, there's almost no house where the thumping of a piano is not heard, claimed the Warsaw Courier. We have pianos on the ground first, second and third floors. Young ladies play the piano, mothers play the piano, children play the piano. The pianos become a family piece of furniture, the family talent's touchstone. These social habits migrated into Siberia as the century progressed and Polish exiles intermarried with Russians, with exiles given land plots to help tie them to the country forever. So that sort of fixes a, a very strong Polish con connection, but it gives an idea of how pianos sort of emigrated with the Poles. They yeah. were, they, you know, they took nothing else. They had to take their piano. And a real sense of community and sort of continuity in that as well. Yes, yes, totally. But there's one, one a good, a very good one about um, Sviatoslav Richter, who was probably the 20th century most phenomenal pianist. And he's actually said to have said to a pupil, well, you know, he did, I know that for a fact. He said to a pupil of his, um, why play the wrong note when the right one is next to it? you would sort of stop playing the piano after that, you know, that, oh dear, yeah, well, yes. I, I, I quote here, Richter was aware of the intense foreign tours made by Franz Liszt, uh, who is late 19th century composer. And the comparison is enlightening. Both men endured endless bumpy potholes to get to where they wanted to play. They also both made do whatever instrument they were presented with, Liszt performing on a rattling tom upright in an Irish hotel sitting room and Richter on all, on all manner of Soviet equivalents in the small towns scattered through Siberia. Contrary to popular myth, Richter didn't bring with him his favourite Yamaha. It's hard to imagine a grand piano in a yurt or in the taiga, observed Richter. In deepest Russia, quote, I didn't always have these fine instruments, far from it, but I paid no attention, said Richter. In any case, there have been times when I've played on terrible pianos and played extremely well. <laughs> so, um, Richter, who hated flying, visited 
Kaparovsk Chita, where he looked for the Decembrists' pianos and failed to find them. Ulan Ude, Irkutsk, Krasnorosk, Bernal, as well as numerous settlements in between. In Apakan, on the Yenesi River, a local article described the Richter frenzy. For the first time, Siberians could hear him perform live. Venues included local music schools and concert halls. Richter's programs, even those scribbled on pieces of paper and posted shortly before the event, always sold out fast, sometimes in less than 30 minutes, through word of mouth the hall would be full. That's not done in the West, he once remarked. Um, with Richter, simplicity was the point. He liked to play in the dark, so the audience would focus on the music, not the performer. All that matters is that people come not out of snobbery, but to listen to the music, he said. So that just gives a sort of flavour of the background that um, Sophie Roberts comes up with and, uh, and all the ins and outs of performances and performing. Yeah, but that is only probably about a third of the book. Um, you know, the other two thirds are as much to do with Russian life and the people she meets, most extraordinary people. I mean, she, she met um, one cleric in a tiny village somewhere who was, a, who was part of a breakaway group. Um, I forget what they're called now, in, this, in the 17th century. They broke away from Moscow uh, a, a sort of sect of them, broke away from Moscow for religious reasons, and they were hounded and exercised and so forth. And 20,000 of them committed mass suicide rather than be, rather than follow the, the toe the relig religious line. And she comes across facts like that, which <laughs> <Yep. laughs> you wouldn't have known pianos at all. Nothing to the pianos at all, but extraordinary sort of facts about that. It sounds like a, a fascinating book, um, and uh, thank you very much for, for, for sharing that. Um, so just before we finish, I was just wondering, do you have any just general thoughts on your reading or the, the importance of literature over the last few months when we've been going through so much as a, as a community and a society um, and being stuck in, inside and yeah. any sort of, yeah, what, what has the literature meant for your lockdown? Well, for me, it's meant an awful lot. Um, being able to, well, to have the time, I know I'm retired, but I, <laughs> I still, I value I the time that I can take to do, to do this. Um, it's, been, it's been a comfort. I, I know some people read, anyway, you know, so many books a year, which I haven't been reading as much during lockdown as in lockdown. But I think it's been a great source of comfort and a great eye-opener. It's given me a chance to broaden my horizons and really to sort of connect with a lot of things which I think I was in sort of too much of a hurry in my life to connect to and to sort of settle down and really, really connect to these things. It's been fantastic. So I've, I've really valued time. My name is Rachel Lawrence and I live in Huddersfield in West Yorkshire with my daughter, a dog called Molly and a cat called Smudge. 
In normal life, I divide my time between my own writing and teaching creative writing. I'm first and foremost a poet, but now I mainly write novels under the name R.S. Hall. I'm just about to self-publish my novel, which is the first in what I hope will be a series of three for young adults called the Wolf Eagle Trilogy. I'm a writer because it is the only thing I've ever really wanted to do. I love the way you can enable the reader to enter different worlds. I love telling stories and asking what if. In lockdown, writing has been very different. I normally write in cafes because I find it stimulating to be amongst people. Also, getting out of the house to write makes it feel more like a job makes me takes me away from the usual distractions. Writing has been hard for me in lockdown. I've found it difficult to motivate myself and I've realised how much I rely on interaction with other people to boost my creative energy and stimulate ideas. Motivation is usually a huge problem for writers. My boyfriend occasionally sends me a picture of his eye to remind me that somebody is watching me, so I do have a little bit of accountability. There is a connection between reading and writing. If you want to be a writer, it's important to know what good writing is and to understand why people read things and what things work or don't work. I studied English literature to A-level and read quite regularly until I became a mum. But I think watching films and TV dramas with well-crafted scripts and interesting characters is as good as reading. For example, during lockdown, I've watched all seven series of Orange is the New Black and I'm currently catching up with Life on Mars. I do have to be careful how much reading I do. I've got ME and I'm unable to concentrate for long. So often the choice for me is between writing my own stuff and reading. I can't do both, and so I have to focus my energies on my writing. I'd like to read an extract from my novel, The Wolf Eagle Awakening. This extract follows a crash landing in the desert. My two main characters are in a dream and they've taken to the skies in a small Cessna aircraft uh, but they have to land really quickly and they're just flying over the Syrian desert. Um, Mim is flying the aircraft and Pepe unfortunately has been sick into her hand because of the bumpy nature of the descent. So here goes. Suddenly all they could hear was the desert wind breathing melodiously through the carcasses of the scattered vehicles and ramshackle buildings on the edge of the airstrip. As the adrenaline left Mim's body, she was overwhelmed by a sharp pain in her ankle. Her left foot had been jammed tightly under the dashboard and rammed further forwards on the heavy landing, jolting her foot and ankle. Peppy turned and looked at her with her mouth open, blinking away the grit of the desert. 
The sun streamed through the windscreen of the plane, powerful, warm and comforting, as the day presented itself to them like a shiny new coin. The front of Peppy's hair was laced with creamy saliva and a fragment of peanut from the chocolate bar was clinging to her bottom lip. Flipping out, Peppy, you look just like you crawled out of a swamp. She swallowed the end of her last word and immediately put her hand to her mouth. She knew how important Peppy's appearance was to her and so she braced herself for a verbal tirade. Peppy stared at Mim for a few seconds through a curtain of sodden hair. She leant out of the plane, took the film of dust off the wing mirror with her thumb and peered at herself. Not wanting to feed Mim's amusement, she suppressed the urge to laugh, but her shock at what she saw, coupled with the euphoria of realising they were still alive, caused her to burst into fits of maniacal laughter. Mim dropped a hand from her mouth and started to chuckle helplessly. They both stumbled out of the cockpit. Mim, unable to bear her weight on her injured ankle, collapsed onto the ground where she found temporary relief from the searing pain. Peppy held onto a nearby rock and with the other hand clutched her stomach as she guffawed and sobbed in equal measure as the emotions of the past few minutes gradually left her body. After a few minutes laughing helplessly, Mim was aware of a shadow above her and squinted through eyes blurred with tears at the shape of a person standing over her. Lady, said the mouthless shadow, Lady, you cannot stay here. Thank you to Rachel for that exclusive extract. The Wolf Eagle Awakening will be published in two months' time, so keep looking out for details of where to purchase coming soon. This podcast was produced and presented by me, Emily McGrath, with interviews conducted by Adrian Hawkins. The music was created by Scott Holmes, accessed through the Free Music Archive. Thank you so much to all of our contributors, Maddie O'Hara, Sarah Mitchell, Ed Kay and Rachel Lawrence. You can find us on Twitter at Resonate Bristol and Facebook at Resonate. Thank you for listening.